Reading for the sermon is from 2 Samuel chapter 9, the whole chapter. It's on page 303 of your Sanctuary Bible, if you want to follow along there. And uh, just a few words of introduction. That somber, sober reading that Adele gave is actually related somewhat to what we're going to be reading today, uh, as you'll find out how. But a few words of introduction. We're beginning a new sermon series and sort of overlapping our old sermon series. We're preaching the final sermon series from our series on First and Second Samuel, which has been really wonderful and interesting. And we're beginning a new sermon series today on compassion, mercy, and justice. And this is God's heart for those who are in need, those who have disadvantage, those who need help in this world. And so uh, I want to read to you what I sent out in an email earlier this week, and this is from our denomination and their view of what uh, gives energy to their work about compassion, mercy, and justice. In fact, there's a whole department of our denominational body which is dedicated just to this sort of work, and it's, it's, it's been that way for many years. So this is something that our denomination has very much identified as something that it wants to do. But listen to this. This is from our denominational resources. In Luke 4, 18 through 19, Jesus boldly announced his mission. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the end of the quote. And this is what the document says. Jesus announced good news for the whole world with particular attention to the poor, the captive, the incapacitated, and the oppressed. Jesus persistently allied himself with untouchables as well as the voiceless. In both word and deed, he attacked discrimination against lepers, Gentiles, Samaritans, tax collectors, shepherds, women, and children. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus condemned those who showed the poor neither compassion nor mercy. That's in Luke chapter 16. When the disciples of John the Baptist asked Jesus if he was the expected Messiah, he replied, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's from Luke chapter 7. So, compassion, mercy, and justice are at the heart of the mission of God the Father. It's not the only thing he does, but it's very important to God's heart. Isn't it clear from the scriptures? And this is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is incarnated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so when we talk about compassion and mercy and justice, we're simply reflecting God's heart and Jesus' heart as it's recorded in the Scripture. These are all things that are near and dear to God's heart. So I want to introduce a little bit about our reading today. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 9. I mentioned it a few weeks ago that David, as it was normal back then, when one king took over from another king whom he wasn't really related to, the job, the first job was to sort of clean out anyone who had a legitimate claim to the throne who wasn't in your family. And that happened. So David had to, David had to or other people had to on his behalf kill off most of Saul's children and grandchildren. That was just how life was back then. Um, and there was one exception, and that's what we're going to read about today, is there was a young man named Mephibosheth, 
And he was Jonathan's son. And remember that David had a special relationship with Jonathan. They were bonded together like brothers. In fact, they made a covenant with each other. And I'm going to read you that. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 and on. And this is what it says. Uh, Jonathan is speaking to David. He says, if I, Jonathan, am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. These two men, Jonathan and David, were as close as brothers, but they weren't related. David was married to Jonathan's sister. We know that part. And David had a complicated relationship with Saul, Jonathan's father. And as we know, Saul was, fell into disfavor with the Lord, and David was anointed king at the same time that Saul was. And many years of bloodshed and battle ensued until David became king. Even after David became king of Jerusalem and the cities around it, still there was one of the sons of Saul named Ishbosheth who waged war with David. Finally, Ishbosheth died, and all of Israel came together under the kingship of David. So, that's some of the background is that David and Jonathan had a relationship. And this young man named Mephibosheth is the youngest son, one of the youngest sons of Jonathan. And David decides that he will show mercy to somebody that in actuality he was supposed to eradicate for the sake of his own line and his own kingdom. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. So this is, uh, David is being a little countercultural here by sparing one of his descendants, but yet he had a covenant with this young man's father. So let's read. Go ahead and look at page 303 if you want to follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 9, the entire chapter. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. 
and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at King David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to tell you about a little town near the town I grew up. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I have mixed feelings about my hometown. It's my hometown. It's in the middle of the desert. I love it. There's really beautiful sides to it. But you know what? It's, it's nicer living here. The weather is just so much better here. I've been talking to people in Tucson lately, and they're like, it's like hell here. It's so hot. And then it's the, the monsoon season started, so it was hot and humid. So it was like 103 degrees out and 90% humidity. And, and they're like, we're dying here. They're like, you should thank God that you're not here. And I'm like, I do. I do. I thank you. I thank you, God, that I'm not in Tucson. But I love Tucson. But there's a town outside Tucson called Marana. And Marana is like, when I was a kid, it wasn't really the greatest place. It was sort of on the freeway as you went to Tucson from Phoenix. And as you drove by, all you could really see was a cement factory, like this big machine in the background and a bunch of dust and a bunch of trucks moving around. And like one store that was like the feed store. But I don't know what animals were out there because it was just all flat desert land. It was just this dusty sort of southwest town but without any of like the charm that you would expect of a southwest town. Marana was the place where the river that goes through Tucson emptied out. There's a little river in Tucson. It was just a few hundred feet from where I grew up. It's called the Rito River. Now, as you may know, that's kind of redundant because it just means little river, river. So if you were in the know, you would just call it the Rito, which means the little river, you know. But the little river, river is one of those rare rivers in in the world, actually, that doesn't empty out into anything. It doesn't empty into a lake. It doesn't empty out into the ocean. It doesn't join with the Colorado River and go down to the Gulf of Mexico. It empties. It basically gets wider and wider and wider and shallower and shallower and shallower. And most of the year, it's just dry. But in the monsoon seasons, it, it runs. And it empties out at Marana. And all the trash that's accumulated all year long in the dry bed of the river gets picked up and carried to Marana, which everybody in Tucson probably thinks that's where it belongs, you know. We used to go to Marana to be in a high school track meet, and we would drive on the bus out to Marana to, to play against the kids from Marana. And almost without a fail, every year we said, who lives out here in this town? Now, it's a nice town now. It's actually kind of had its, its come up. But, but at the time, we're like, who lives? in this crazy little town. Now, why am I talking about Marana? Hmm, you're wondering that. Well, there's a town that's mentioned in this story, and that's the town that Mephibosheth lives. I, I'm having a hard... I need a cup of water. If I'm going to say Mephibosheth five more times, I'm going to have a problem. Mephibosheth lived in a town called Lodabar. Lodabar means one of three things. It means either no pasture 
Or it could mean no word, because the word dabar is the word for word in Hebrew. But that could also mean no communication, no, no word, actual word, or no word has come from there. It's kind of like the Morana to Jerusalem. In a way, it's not that far from Jerusalem, but it's on the other side of the Jordan. Some of you went on this trip that we took to Israel. As you go, we went down to the Jordan River for a baptism. It's kind of flat down there. It's kind of dry down there. It's kind of like a desert down there. And on the other side of the Jordan, which is where Lodabar was, there's really not much. Thus, that gave it that name. No pasture. No livestock. No income. No word. No communication goes there, and no communication comes from there. It's like the cement factory town that you drive by on the interstate. You're like, who lives there? Nobody of consequence. Mephibosheth lives there. That's the name of his town. And so there's a little bit of background about Mephibosheth that I want you to know. First off, and we talked about this a little while ago, his name was actually Meribal. Meribaal. That's how his name is recorded in Chronicles. But the name Baal that used to be at the name end of many people's names was changed to Bosheth as a sign of shame because they, the later writers of the Bible didn't like the word Baal showing up in so many names. And then the front part of his name kind of got twisted up too. So instead of being called Meribosheth, he became called as Mephibosheth. Okay, so that's his name. Anyway, he was one of Jonathan's sons. He was five years old when word came that Jonathan and Saul had been killed at Mount Gilboa, and his, the servant, whose job it was to babysit him, picked him up and started running out of fear. And what happens when you're carrying somebody and you run? You drop them. I learned this at my high school prom. You want to know this story, don't you? So I went to prom. Me and my friend, Brandon, we both had girlfriends that didn't go to the high school. And that's the worst thing, because you bring a, somebody to your prom, and they don't know anyone there. So why is that fun for them? And you know what I realized is prom is not all that fun either. It's just a lot of money. That's all it is. It's just not that fun. So we try to make our own fun. Is I picked up my date, and Brandon picked up his date, and we thought we were being chivalrous. And then we looked at each other with this kind of, I don't know, daring look, and we said, let's race. This is like the dumbest idea I've ever had in my life. And Brandon was smarter than me. He slowed down. I had to win. So I'm carrying my date, and she's getting further and further in front of me. The center of gravity is just not working out. If you're a physicist, you could figure it out in a second. And I made a decision. Was it going to be my arms that were going to get crushed, or was I going to let go? <laughs> wasn't, my, wasn't my brightest hour. I let go. She fell. She did not break her feet like Mephibosheth did, but she hurt her elbow, and her white dress landed on asphalt. And so it was a chilly Chilly prom night from that time on, even though it was in Tucson. This wasn't, this wasn't very, it was memorable, but not fun. Not fun. So don't run while you're carrying somebody, even if it's a five-year-old child. Just don't do it. My kids sometimes, I'm, they're, they're on my um, 
I, they ride on my shoulders or whatever, and they say, Papa, run, and I'm like, no. <laughs> nope, nope, that's not gonna happen. So here's this young man, and he's crippled. And this is a real problem back then, right? Because crippled people, even if it's somebody else's fault, there's this stigma associated with not being able to walk, with having broken feet that never heal the right way. A person with a club foot, for example, may not approach the holiness. They can't because there's some sort of curse that's lying on them. There's some sort of sense that either their parents or they have sinned. And also, this was a culture that really prized military prowess and athleticism. And so this young man could never grow up to be king even if he was in the line of succession, even if David never came along, right, but his grandfather had died when this happened, because he couldn't lead an army with broken feet. So he was always going to be someone who's out there. And to keep him safe and to keep him out of the way and to keep him away from David's sword, somebody who was smart, maybe the person who dropped him, took him out to load the bar and said, keep your head down. You might just live through this because you're actually not that much of a threat. So much so that you'll notice that David didn't even know he existed anymore. Did you catch that? David didn't say, bring me Mephibosheth. He just said, is there anyone left that hasn't been slaughtered yet that I could actually show God's mercy to? And they, the people who were in the know said, actually, yes, there is. There's this one young man who broke his feet when he was five years old. He's not really a threat to you, and he lives in Marana. And David said, bring him here. Put him on Interstate 10 and bring him on down. And so that's what happens. Mephibosheth comes, and he doesn't know what to expect, does he? I mean, he might have heard that David said, who can I show mercy to? But can you imagine? He probably had to come on some sort of litter or donkey or be carried the last few steps into David's presence. Here he is on his crutches, trying to kneel before David, wondering, if when he kneels, his head is going to chop, get chopped off. You just don't know. I mean, this is, I give it to Mephibosheth for showing up. Probably didn't have much of a choice. And what comes out of David's mouth next? But he calls him by name. And he says, I remember the covenant I made with your father, Jonathan, whom I love. And I'm going to restore to you Everything that was taken from Saul, as you can imagine, Saul as king had vineyards and land and farms and all sorts of things that were taken from him when he died and became David's property. That's just how the world worked back then. So these considerable estates and farms and things like that, David says, I'm going to give them up and I'm going to give them to you, Mephibosheth. And this man, Ziba, who's, who's your servant and my servant, he and his family are going to farm the land for you, and they're going to bring you the profit from it. So now he went from living in Lodabar to living in Jerusalem. He went from obscurity and maybe not much wealth to becoming actually a fairly wealthy person. Do you see how he's coming up in so many ways because of this covenant relationship that his father had with David and David's mercy? But the really amazing thing is David said, you're going to eat at my table now. Did you catch that part? That's actually, to me, the most striking part of this. Not that he was restored all the ancestral lands of his grandfather, but that David said, you're going to eat at my table. In that culture, 
that means that we're equals. We're family now. You sit at, sit at my table just like one of my sons, basically. So this is huge. This is restoration of somebody who's marginalized, who's way in the outs, out in low to bar. He's brought to the center of power. He's brought to the social center of the whole kingdom. He's restored financially, but he's also honored and said, you are like one of my sons or you are like one of my family. Now, what was Mephibosheth thinking? Wow, my fortunes have turned. I still can't walk, but I'm sitting at the Lord's table. And as it goes, it says that Mephibosheth, look at verse 13, lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. So, this is the question that happens. David's question. Is there anyone I could show mercy to? For Jonathan's sake. Mercy and kindness. And Pastor Victoria had it right. David had the right not to punish Mephibosheth, but to eliminate Mephibosheth. That was just the hierarchy of the world back then. But David did the opposite. Restored his fortunes, brought him to Jerusalem, had him sit at his table. And so the question is about mercy. And this is a type or a foreshadowing of what Jesus does. If you look at the life of David, and I wish we'd had even more time in this sermon series, because if you look at David and Goliath and a few other places in David's life, you actually see that David is a foreshadowing an imperfect one, but a very beautiful foreshadowing of the life of Jesus in so many ways. So much so that the gospel writers make sure that we know that when it comes to Jesus' genealogy, there's always a connection to King David. David is a Messiah because he's anointed. He was anointed king. Jesus is the Messiah. David, uh, Jesus is a descendant of David's family. And this is one of those times where you catch David doing a very Jesus-like Thing. Think about this. Use your imagination a little bit, okay? I want you to think about this. Um, and I wish we were serving communion today because this would be a good example. And we had that reading about communion from Adele. Thank you. Now, I wish we were having communion today, but I want you to maybe think about it this week and prepare yourselves for communion next week. That the table uh, that we're going to partake from next week is somehow related to this story, too. In fact, medieval painters, and I haven't been able to found the, find this, but I heard it, medieval painters would sometimes paint a portrait of Mephibosheth, but not at David's table, but at the Last Supper. Isn't that interesting? That Mephibosheth, they kind of uh, anachronistically put at the Last Supper. But think about the Last Supper, where Jesus brought all these disciples to the table with him. And they weren't crippled physically, right, that we know of, but they were all sorts of messed up people. Just remember what the disciples were really like. They were very messed up people. They had all sorts of problems. They betrayed Jesus. They wanted to rain down fire on the world to anybody who didn't believe in him. And he's like, no, no, we don't do that. Um, Jesus breaks bread with these 12 disciples, right? He covenants with them. He says, you're no longer my servants. Servants don't know the master's business. You're my friends. We are equals at this table. That the Son of God and God himself would sit at table with 12 messed up people 
and say, we're on the same level here at this table. And I'm giving all of this, I'm giving you myself as a covenant. That's amazing. He breaks bread with them. He covenants with them. And that's the model that David does with Mephibosheth. It's a restoration of somebody who's had something terrible happen to them. His legs were broken. He was unable to walk. He was sent almost in exile out to not a very great place, Lodabar. And David pulls him in, shows him mercy, makes him an equal at the table, and restores him to where he, to, to life in the royal court. And so, I want this to be a model for us as we think about how do we engage? What does God want to do through us? How does God want to be merciful to the world through us? And actually, maybe ask the same question that David asked. Isn't that a great question? Who is there in this world that I could show mercy to? Who is there? I mean, it's a great question. We don't have a servant like Ziba to answer for us, but we have other answers that could come our way. The answer comes our way just by being observant, actually. There are people who are injured and cannot walk. We could be compassionate to them. There are people who cannot walk for a whole host of other reasons besides being injured. And there's people who are immobilized by their social status or their economic status or their race or many other things. And they are stuck in what we would, our version of low to bar now, a place where there's no word and no voice and no communication and no pasture, no means for them to help themselves, right? This is hard for Americans to hear, so I maybe want to emphasize this. As I grew up with this sense that anybody in this world, and this was taught to me by my teachers and by America, Anybody in this world, no matter what their circumstances, could just work a little bit harder and they could start to succeed and they'd have enough to eat and they'd have enough, right? Is that true, Karen? It's not true. Not true in Liberia. It's not even true in America. We want it to be true because then we don't have to really help them. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons where we would want it to be true, but it's not really true. There are children of abuse who are so damaged that they can't even have a conversation with anyone, and they'll never have a job because they can't keep a job, right? I mean, there's things like that. People with alcoholic parents. There's people with injuries. There's people with disabilities. There's people who have started life in poverty, and because of the choices that they make and the choices that other people around them make, they just can't get out. This is a reality. Um, I would love for it to be true that if somebody who was so poor and they could just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and some do, we have to say that, some do, praise God. And, and that's amazing. And, and I hope that they would then turn around and help those who haven't. But there's some part of this that God understands and that he wants us to understand, is that there are some people who will not get ahead at all, unless they find help from somebody else. There's a lot of people like Mephibosheth in this world, that they're way out there, and there's no word, and there's no communication, and they're inconsequential, and they live 
in the concrete factory town. And that's that. And we drive by, and when we visit, we say, who lives here? So there is this sense that God wants us to help. God wants us to ask that question that David asked. How can I be merciful to somebody who needs mercy? Well, God will put it on our hearts. I know that. I think I would look at it this way, and this is where this story is actually so radical. What does David do? He doesn't send Mephibosheth a bushel of wheat, does he? He doesn't send him five oxen that he could slaughter. He restores Mephibosheth's economic status. Amazing. But he treats him as an equal, too. What if when we help people, it's not just writing a check and walking away, but what if when we help people, we say to them, on some level, we have to eat at the same table with you. We have to decide that we're equals with you, even though in so many ways we're not equals. That's what the mercy, I think, really looks like. That's why this story is a very different, radical story of mercy. It's about David's heart. None of that really would have mattered so much unless David said, he's going to eat at my table. And how the story ends, for the rest of his life, he ate at David's table. A table of covenant, a table of mercy, a table of equality. Wow. So you all think I'm becoming a communist now, and that's okay. Don't worry. I can, I can handle it. It's all right. And I can't handle it. I really care what you think about me, and I'm going to be really depressed the rest of this day. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. Um, on some level, we need to follow God's lead. We need to follow David's lead. We need to follow Jesus' lead, the way he had table fellowship with untouchable people, sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, and he touched lepers. This is the example. I, I'm, I'm not being out of line with Scripture by saying any of this, am I? We're talking about the heart of God. We're talking about the incarnation of Jesus, how he acted towards people. He treated them as equals. He said to his disciples, you're no longer my servants. Servants don't know what the master's business is. You are now my friends. We're sharing this bread at this table. So if we're going to do compassion and mercy and justice, perhaps we have to start with the table and say we're equals. We're together in this. And we're not going to just hand you a check, but we have to engage with you on a deeper level. So we're going to be fleshing out these ideas more in the next weeks. Uh, we're concluding First and Second Samuel. Praise God. That was great. Pastor Victoria's heart is very much in this topic, and she's going to preach two times in this sermon series. I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say. This is where her heart burns. She loves children, but her heart burns for this too. So I'm really excited about this. Paul Wilson, our superintendent, is going to come on August 19th. He and his wife have a ministry to victims of human trafficking. This is very much a compassion and mercy and justice issue. I'm looking forward to what he has to say. And so I'm going to end by asking us to pray together for guidance. I think we need the Spirit to lead us here. Uh, Lord, and let's pray. Show us those whom you would like to be shown mercy for the sake of the covenant with your son Jesus. And give us the courage to invite them to the table and to work with them toward restoration. Amen.